Welcome to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. We're bringing together some of the best technical leaders from across the Nordics region to discuss industry passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm Hannah, and I connect businesses with talented freelancers in the Swedish market. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Amir, Stefan and Jacqueline to discuss design systems and some of the challenges and diverse ways we can develop them. But before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and what your biggest passion is currently. Amir, do you want to kick us off? Yes. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Amir, and it's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you, uh, Hannah. And um, I've been working as a product designer for the past eight years. Currently, I'm working within the fintech industry at Klarna. And uh, I moved from Stockholm to Toronto about two years ago. Um, and my current passion is, uh, the last of us. And I don't know if you're following this series or not. I'm going to restart, uh, the game. Uh, I played it many years ago and I just want to catch up with the storyline. I think there'll be even more in, uh, yeah, that's for me. Nice. I love that. So many people I know have been talking about the last of us at the moment. I feel like it's like the new game of Thrones. It's all I'm hearing about and all I'm seeing online. I haven't started it yet, but it must be good. <laughs> Stefan, can you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, Stefan Zordaklump, uh, currently product designer at Walt. Uh, also originally from Toronto, I've been in Stockholm for the past four years. Uh, outside of design, which is a bit of an obsession, I think, uh, really trying to train for my first triathlon that has been cancelled since 2019, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Stefan has been training for that for as long as I've known him now. I'm beginning to think that it's a bit of a cop-out excuse, like you picked something that got cancelled because of COVID just so that you could say you were training for a triathlon. But we'll see if you uh, we'll see if you get to it. <laughs> uh, they said August 5th this year, so we'll see what happens. Okay, I'll be, I'll be checking on you in August for that. Perfect. <laughs> Jacqueline, can you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Jacqueline. I'm a UX designer at Indians and I've been within the industry for about five, six years now. Uh, and I just love everything about creating experiences in general. But during my free time, I usually sit and create big my illustrations. I know it's, it's called like big illustrations, um, creating Sonic and that kind of thing, just for funny. So yeah, a bit of a nerd when it comes to UI and graphics. I love that. That's so nice. And are you, you're a bit of a gamer yourself, are you? Have you also been watching The Last of Us? I haven't started yet. I was going to, but then like my playing of Call of Duty kind of got in the way. So <laughs> I'm saving it for the weekend. Okay. Okay. 
So you love games so much that you have a bit of a backlog. That sounds like me with books. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got books too. So I've got that in common. You're a busy, busy woman. <laughs> so now that we've established a bit more context to each of you, and thank you for those introductions, guys, let's move on to the topic in focus. So you've all got some unique thoughts and experiences on design systems to bring to the conversation today. But I'd like to start with Amir. Amir, when we last spoke, we talked a little bit about how sometimes we need to do certain things to convince stakeholders and decision makers to actually invest in our design systems. So can you expand a little bit on that to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. I think most of the product companies at the moment now do realize the value of design systems. But nevertheless, if you're a designer in a situation who has to sort of fight for uh, that work stream uh, within your company, uh, in my experience, I find it that teaming up with engineers and your uh, product managers early on is um, is going to make it a lot easier to convince maybe business stakeholders and uh, higher ups to dedicate some resources. Uh, but having said that, you know it's it's really easy to actually uh, I would say align with the goals of a design system with engineers at least as they're used to working within um, a framework themselves that includes, you know, uh, classes, IDs that generally they try to reduce redundancies and duplicate work. Um, but I think one um, one thing that may become a little bit of a um, problem is just seeing the impact and seeing how um, tangible is it. And, I would say that probably starting a design system is not going to be um, maybe rewarding in the beginning. Uh, there is a bit of a hill to climb and uh, it, it is going to take a little bit of time to build up the structure and the foundation before uh, you, you start seeing results. But of course, it's about looking um, in the distance and it's about planning ahead and uh, basically uh, becoming yeah, a bit more sufficient, um, but that takes time and that takes a bit of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Stefan, do you experience with this where you've been in a situation where you've kind of had to win some stakeholders over to spend that time on the design system? Yeah, I mean, it happens almost, a lot of companies that show up at, you need to get the buy-in from there and each time, I think it always comes down to the conversation and just selling the solution. A lot of them, if they're business minded, I always try to tailor the language that way. Like there's some really good stats out there. And one of the ones that I remember offhand is just like, I remember just telling them like, if we just eliminated code redundancy, like we can like regain more than 20% of a developer's time. And since they kind of know how much a developer costs, like if you have a team of like a hundred developers, you can almost save yourself like 200, uh, sorry, 2 million like dollars per year based on just time back. Um, and just kind of trying to bring that ROI figure to them to understand like, this is just something that we're going to build now. And it's just a lot of like well-tested reuse components that we can bring in and distribute it that way. So we're going to invest a lot of time now to get this started, but like outside of that, it's there. And I always try to pitch the vision of like, how can we have this go from a napkin sketch to code without everything in between? Um, and then just always reminding them like design just doesn't scale from hiring alone like you need a system in place you need to be able to do and like build this consistency over there mm. 
Yeah, definitely. I think if you can kind of like always bring it back to that bottom line, it's something that everybody can just appreciate the value of. If you can find a way to like connect it with some kind of monetary value, it's just the easiest way, I think, to express the value of something, isn't it, within a business. Jacqueline, is this something that you've experienced in any of your projects through in use where you've needed to maybe convince some decision maker or other of kind of the value of the design system? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my previous project that I was on, we built the design system from scratch, more or less. And it was a uh, start in the beginning when I joined and then me and another UX designer started building on that. And then since it was just in the starting bits of the creation of the entire design system, we still needed the developers to start like putting it into storybook or some other sorts place so we can store the code and make it more public. But it was always about pushing them to start including the design system into the code as well. And then talking to their bosses to be able to push them even more and give them the time to actually implement it. Yeah. Because you were working, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you were working there in an industry that traditionally it doesn't really kind of have much of a history um, with digitization, I suppose. And I think actually that is what you said to me, that they were kind of going through a phase of trying to digitize more of their systems, but possibly a little bit later than than some industries um, are. Do you feel like that was kind of part of the hurdle that maybe some of the decision makers there were just a little bit less familiar with um, with design systems and with kind of, well, all things in that kind of like digital UX space? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different industries today that it's not as digitalized that they could be, so to say. Um, and it's always like, it's a really positive thing when a company starts realizing, well, we can do this much better and so much easier and so much better for our users mm. if we start thinking outside the box that we're in at the moment. And yeah. So, yeah, I mean, of course, just as everything that you do as a UX designer, it's a lot about learning how things work behind the scenes and why we do certain stuff. And it's mm. the same with the design systems. It's about finding the right motivations, just and stuff I said. Yeah, definitely. And I'm curious to hear from you guys what you think of why this might be a problem, because what I see as a recruiter a lot of the time nowadays is there are more and more companies emerging who are very design centered and very sort of focused on their their user experience, um, obviously, especially in the IT and tech space that we work in. But, you know, also in other industries, it's a growing thing to have this very design-centric ethos. So within that space, why do you think that we still have what seems like so many higher-up decision-makers who don't kind of already innately know the value of the design system? Um, Amir, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, off the top of my head, I would assume is that it's maybe because there is no one to facilitate and spearhead the um, design system um, workflow. Um, the, the way I would look at a system, like a design system specifically, um, it's also, you know, the way you set up an entire team or um, the way people work together to establish this common goal. Uh, sometimes maybe higher ups assume that, you know, they might need to dedicate a whole team to uh, establishing a, a design system and mm. that not 
that's not necessarily the case. So it's maybe in part our uh, responsibility to bring a bit of knowledge and uh, wisdom on that. And that's, yeah, I think Stefan, you have something to share. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to, to jump in. I think a lot of the times that happens is like the decision makers and what I've seen before is like they've gotten so far without it that they just don't realize why they need it. Um, and a lot of the times, like if you're starting from a small startup, there's like a, one designer who's in there and they're doing all the work and I'm like, oh, this, this is just all one designer. And they don't realize like, and a lot of times, like when I've come into like smaller companies and I've helped them set up systems as well, it's like they have everything in their head and they don't know how to like verbalize it and have it be replicated throughout other designers. You build this other debt and like from what I've seen is like, it's been working this way so far. It's fine. You don't need to. Um, and they just kind of build it that way so they don't see the value because of how it's been working already and they don't understand how it's, it helps them scale in that sense at least from the conversation that i've seen as well it's like the amount mm -hmm. that this can bring from a scalability standpoint but then also like keeping things consistent because i remember like i had a design director and she used to pitch it this way like there's three types of debt that every user faces there's design debt tech debt and uh, product debt the designer never really cares about product debt that just lives and dies the slow slow death in the backlog the They'll feel uh, tech debt, like when something loads slowly, doesn't come up properly, server errors, they'll know that. But design debt is the first thing that everybody notices. So if you're jumping around a site and everything's inconsistent all over the place, um, you, you feel that the most. And like what design systems help to do is like unify that. So it feels like one designer has been doing the entire site. And I think sometimes that gets lost. So people just keep hiring designers and like then you get like a disjointed experience across the way, the way there. And yeah, that was really well put. Thank you. And actually, it's um, it's just now occurring to me. Perhaps I should have uh, should have hopped on this a little closer to the beginning. But before we go any further, I think it might be quite good actually for us to clarify what we mean by a design system for the people who are within Evolutions Network working in tech, who are not necessarily working within design, um, because you know we're talking here about expecting people to understand the value of something where maybe actually they've never really been educated on having a depth of understanding of what it actually is. So can anyone um, can anyone just give me a comprehensive layman's terms definition of a design system um, in its simplest form? What is a design system when we're talking to a non-design decision maker? Um, Stefan, I think uh, you have <laughs> a look. I'll do my best. Um, I think the way that I've explained this to people, it's like, it's just a scalable framework of decisions and, and team behaviors across like products. Um, and it's just a, a central hub of where these decisions have been held and how you can use them across it. So it's like just a good way to get, I, I usually use the analogy of Lego. So these are just like, we're giving you Lego kits to build experiences better than that. Yes. I love that. I love the Lego analogy. Thank you for that. So for any decision makers listening to this, who are like, what the heck is this podcast even about? What is a design system? <laughs> now you know. <laughs> and if you don't feel like you do, there's always Google. <laughs> so Amey, you brought something up really interesting in one of our last conversations, which was one of the obstacles that can occur when you have a poorly set up design system and how that can create bottlenecks when a design system can sometimes feel like a bit of a limitation rather than a tool for efficiency. So how can we maintain consistency but avoid creating those limitations within the design system. Um, one of my um, think ways of looking at the design system is uh, from a macro level in the beginning, uh, 
as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, it's it's beyond just perhaps patterns and design libraries and uh, components and guidelines. There is also a process involved. There is um, a human interaction involved, and um, it is at its core a system. And uh, for us to make sure that this system is ever evolving and it's self-sufficient, we have to look at all the um, entry points, all the um, small, um, maybe subsystems involved, and uh, everyone who is who will be involved in the process and making this happen. And the other sort of factor that we need to consider is also the structure uh, of the organization and uh, the resources that we have available to us. Uh, my experience uh, where um, when I first got introduced to design systems what was at Tulip and uh, I had to kickstart um, the design system again. We had a set of systems um, that was in place, but we didn't really have a way of working that was uh, continuous, uninterrupted, and um, sort of um, a design system that was organically growing. Um, and the reason was that, of course, um, you know, we, we didn't have a design team, design system team in place. And uh, for me, it was a very new area. So I had to do a bit of research, teach myself. And uh, what really helped me was um, obviously a lot of articles, uh, but I did read a handbook on design systems on Envision. And you can check that out if you, uh, you're interested. Uh, and there, you know, that's where they really talked about um, the team structures and they um, tried to explain as much as they could how you could understand, you know, what structure would work best for your situation and your team. And uh, within Tulip, of course, being like a 200 and some um, engineers and designers and PMs, so we were, you know, small to medium business we didn't have the capacity to dedicate a whole team uh, or to to conduct a design system um, mm. and bring that to life. So we had to, uh, you know, work uh, within uh, smaller groups, perhaps. Uh, and uh, I created a decentralized way of working. Um, and uh, I don't think there was a lot of bottleneck at the end as, uh, you know, we... Um, we had engineers uh, bringing their um, skills as well and contributing because they definitely saw the benefits of that very early on. And um, I just had a check-in with one of the designers there and they're still uh, using the same way of working. Um, we introduced Zeppelin within, the pro uh, within our workflow there because for us, it helped us with sort of iOS uh, implementation and that's what the company um, specifically worked on and they had a really neat integration with Xcode. So that really saved our developers a lot of time where you might not really find that on uh, something like Storybook, for example. Mm. Um, but it is, I think, to look at those subsystems and the way people work together and your resources where you can identify areas that you um, you might be able to mark as bottlenecks and uh, try and avoid that. Uh, mm. And I'm taking a very long time, but I'm going to quickly give you <clears throat> the other side of that. And uh, at Klarna, for example, and I'm losing my voice. 
but at Klarna right now, um, obviously we have a much bigger team. We have a dedicated design system team and uh, to avoid, avoid that bottleneck, we have a centralized team and also a decentralized way of contributing to the design system. Mm. And I think Stefan, you, you have something to add there, uh, because as I was going through our notes, uh, I read something interesting that you'd like to contribute. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm just trying to figure out where, where to jump in on, on that. Cause it was there. And I think like, I do have to echo, like when you set up a design system correctly, like depending on how it goes foundationally, how you map uh the program uh, how do you map the the components the tokens and everything together i mean it's fairly scalable and it can move from industry to industry having a couple of systems one being for single brands multi-brand or even multi-brand multi-industry um the, the the foundations are the most important part and then i always just try to sort out what are the every time i ask people i always ask like how do you get people to contribute how do you grow the system how do you get them to, to feel included in it I think my biggest question is like, what are the best models to it? And one of the ways that I've always seen that work is this hub and smoke type of model. So you have a centralized team that sometimes works as more as like a manufacturing hub. So they allow the teams to take the centralized components, the little Lego kits, go and build their own adventures and then be able to contribute it back. Um, and then once the, it's reached a good definition of done, sometimes it's, it's good to take in those components, have the centralized team have it be usable and distributed and manufactured out for the rest of the team to to pull and then use for different applications for themselves uh in that sense so i mean for me like that's kind of what i've always seen is like a good way um and setting up the foundation is really really key and and making it kind of bulletproof like at a couple of places i've worked like being some of them love to rebrand almost every couple of years so you can't just always hard code a certain color being a primary you have to sort it out and decouple it and abstract it a bit to figure out how can you make this a little bit future-proof, but then also um, some brands, if they want to bring in somebody else, can you white label this to actually spin it up so they don't have to start from scratch? And I think this goes back to the definition of like having them being well-tested or like I always call them battle-tested components and, and experiences, bring them in. You can pretty much bring in anybody, spin it up, have them already start with what's been tested and validated and is the what we consider already being good. You don't have to start from the ground up. Hmm. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for that, both of you guys. Um, Jacqueline, I'm curious to hear, what was your experience um, with that at De Laval? Um, what kind of model did they use to kind of get everybody on the team to contribute towards the design system? Did they have a set way of doing it or were they not quite there in their design maturity yet? I think we tried to iterate on the way that we contributed to the design system as it started growing because mm. when it started out, building it, it was just one UX signer. And then I came along, started contributing and we continued building it as we were building products and features for the organization. Mm. So it was kind of like a continuously addition to the design system. And then when we started getting more and more people into the team, because the team grew quite a lot during the time that I was there. Uh, we did start to like tweak the responsibility to those that had uh, like more interest and had the time to really sit primarily with UI. And then we started building up around the foundation because we restructured the entire design system as it went along because we realized the first 
like the first draft of the structure didn't work for us. We started rebuilding it because it got too big to be able to handle it in just one file. Yeah. Uh, so we started build, like dividing it up to documentation and to typography and to the icon library. So we switched it up a bit. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. And actually that brings us quite nicely onto a point that Stefan, you and I discussed last time we spoke before the podcast about transitioning into new design systems. Um, so can you expand on that a little bit for us and maybe give us an example of when that might be the case where rather than, um, rather than kind of adapting an existing design system, we might have to transition into a completely new one. Yeah, I think a lot of the time there's a, a couple of scenarios that I've run into like going into them. One of them is companies going through a full rebrand and overhaul, and then you've realized um, you haven't had a good a good foundation to your system, so then you kind of need to start from scratch to uh, apply the new visual language. Mm. Um, sometimes it's also been from just migrating tool sets as well, because there's a lot of sometimes it's just easier to start from scratch than, mm. than get it, but then also figuring out how people can get in and start playing with it. I mean, everybody, especially if you're migrating from Sketch to Figma, I think of like what a lot of systems have done. Some designers get really, really excited to just like start using the new tool. And they're like, where are the components? You're like, okay, you're the first one in here. Like I, I just, like, you just entered it. You've, you've gone into an empty house. I'm like, I haven't put any furniture up yet. Of course, the new set are put up. And so it's like, just like, cool, you're jacked a bit. Um, but I think for me, it's like, it, yeah, it's just like, how do you get them going in there? It's kind of exciting. And I think a lot of the times what I've done to do that and what I found work is like trying to bring people along for the ride and have them kind of crowdsource as much as possible. So uh, one of my favorites I used to do was uh, like, I, I stole this from programming where they do pair programming or mobbing. So then I'll probably bring people in who want to contribute and do like pair design or mobbing design, especially now it's more easier to do in Figma so that you can work together on a set of components together that way you build the knowledge across the teams. Um, and then they've already like helped you migrate in, and move in that way to a new system. Um, or just also just having like, just trying to get people to have a say, I think that's really what it is. Like designers really want to have a, their fingers on the pulse and really get into it. So just respecting that with them and having them get into that system. Yeah. To the new system. That's really nice. Yeah. I love that kind of getting everybody on board by making them feel a part of it. What are some of the blockers that you've come up against in the past where somebody has been like a bit resistant to transitioning to a new system? I think it just comes down to when the communication happens. It's always come down to some sort of communication breakdown. Like if it hasn't happened soon enough, I'm always of the the thing of like communicate, like share early and often. Mm. Um, but if it comes too late, that's usually when the resistance happens. So you've got already here, and then it's like, oh yeah, we're going, we're doing this now, and then it's like, well, when did this happen? And why are we doing it? I uh, know I don't want to. Um, yeah. It's just that they haven't had the chance to to talk about or process it and get through it. So I think it's always just kind of, that's at least what I've learned is like. Is share early and often even as little as like what it is just to get people ready like oh they were thinking about migrating and building a new system to look like this what are your thoughts and like have them have that communication by the time you get there doesn't mm -hmm. feel as like um yeah it doesn't, doesn't hurt as much yeah <laughs> transition over doesn't feel quite as much like a thriller movie where something just jumped out the cupboard at them <laughs> that's a better analogy yes <laughs> No, I get that. And I love the idea that we can kind of get people on board by just making them feel more involved. It's a really nice kind of philosophy behind it. And again, especially sort of in the UX space where so much of 
what we do after we have the design system and we're doing actual UX designing, you know, a lot of empathy and kind of putting yourself in other people's shoes essentially comes into it. So it only kind of makes sense for us to try and think that way with the people that we work with inside the office as well as kind of the the end users of our products as well. So no, I, I really, really love that. Jacqueline, is that something that you experienced at all when you were changing up the design systems and developing them or was everybody kind of like quite on board and happy to have the new system there? No, I think it, most of the people was, were on board. It was just as you said, Stephanie, it's all about communication. We had a really open communication within the team. If there was something, we brought it up yeah. uh, just to clear the air. And I think that helped the team develop as fast as it actually did and mm -hmm. how quickly we actually got things set up properly and started using it. Yeah. So yeah, communication is key. Nice. I love that. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the challenges that you then had developing something that is it's quite different really at least for me recruiting in the IT space the majority of my customers are working either with mobile apps or with web browsers but actually you were designing things that also has to translate to machinery so you know screens of so many different kind of like shapes and dimensions and how how exactly did that affect the way that you had to build the design system what sorts of challenges did you come up against with that I think that Bayesian in general was setting up and the system is looking at the different possibilities and limitations that you do have at hand as well. Um, and when it comes to creating interfaces in general for things to have like more a physical product, mm. like the heat pump in your home or a cooler unit, when it comes to the milking industry, it's mm. it's the same base. You need to look at the screen size and to look at the memory of the different hardware and softwares and operating systems it's mm. so much communication with more people than just within the ux and ui team it's also engineers and developers and po's pms mm. and i think that when building up a brand or design system that works for all you need to think simplicity mm. but you also need to be able to scale it down and still make it feel like one product because when you are working with screens with very low resolution or with physical interfaces that actually do have buttons connected to it and you just show stuff on the screen, it will affect like the feeling and that you get as a user when interacting mm -hmm. with it. So I think it's a lot about documenta documentation. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's a lot about documentation and uh, creating just as I think that the design system kind of are is one source of truth. Like it's one place where you can find most documentation. We can find the components and the margins and the spacing and all that. So it's, it's one common language that we all can speak. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And actually I, I'm curious to hear after hearing you say that. What was it like working with something where the UI has to be able to be so simplified when you have those screens with like super low resolution? Was it actually quite refreshing to work with something so minimal? Because when I imagine it, it's almost like, it's almost nostalgic. Like I'm so <laughs> used to screens with so many options and such high resolution, you can do so much that 
the idea of uh, what I'm essentially picturing as like a Tamagotchi level of resolution <laughs> actually seems kind of refreshing. What was that like? <laughs> uh, it was really, really hard uh, because, yes. I mean, since it's so many things that affect how what you can design and add into it, I mean, how many colors can we add into it? Yes, yeah. that is a question when it comes to the hardware and the software. So it's really, really hard. And when I started doing that, I didn't have any idea about all the different limitations and possibilities that we did have. Mm. But I learned as I went along with it. So it started yeah. out as just a evaluation of the interface that they had. What can we do to make this easier to interpret and understand by the user? Um, and then it continued into actually creating more visual concepts of how those solutions could look and work. Mm. Since most of these like machines in general are built to last, it's not like an iPad. You're not going to exchange it. Ex sorry, exchange. That's the word for it. Exchange it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you. Um, you're not going to exchange the screen after like two years, or you're not going to refresh the interface after one year. You can't mm. do that when it comes to the physical products. They yeah. are built in a way to last 10, 20 years. And you need to think about that when designing for it. Yeah. I love that. It's so interesting to me because it's so different from the like incredibly sort of almost trend-based, like really fast-paced world that I work with a lot of the time in the kind of like IT sector. So that's super, super interesting to me. And again, it's just made me really want to play in a Tamagotchi, actually. <laughs> And Stefan, you have quite a bit of experience, don't you, with building a design system that has to be scalable to different industries and different brands. And so, you know, something that is kind of very unified at its core, but very, very versatile and kind of scalable. Can you sort of expand a little bit more on that and kind of tell us about that experience? Oh, God, that was a fun design challenge in itself. <laughs> um, I think a lot of it just comes down to understanding the common elements and like just t really really stripping it back and uh, and just to uh to quote jacko is like just say like just keep the simplicity is the important part and i think understanding how everything connects together how simple you can make it um i think once you scale it all back a lot of these things are very similar so like buttons are buttons no matter which way you go and they just kind of change a little bit they're either pill shaped they're either round some of them are square and i think those small common elements are just like what make them a little bit different but then uh, understanding like certain components can be used in different ways. I think one of them was uh, going from a grocery tile to something that you're going to use for optical. Like there's still similar things there. They may not show all the stuff, but it's just being able to have those things scalable and understanding. Like at its core, these things are they're they're essentially the same. But what makes them you don't have to understand kind of what makes them different. I think that's where the brand and the tone and how it's in those kind of are uh, really what sets it apart. Yeah. Nice. Thank you for that. And I'm I'm conscious of the time, guys, and we are going to have to wrap up soon. But before we go, Amir, I would really love for all of our listeners to hear something that you said to me last time we spoke about basing the design system on a principle and how that can kind of like really ground it. Can you just expand on that a little bit before we drop off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this resonates with the point that uh, Jacqueline and Stefan made here as well because you can't really predict what kind of challenge you come across. Mm. Uh, um, 
when you have a design principle set in place, you have the uh, tone and voice and the vision of the product set in place that can become uh, sort of an unblocker and allow you to perhaps, you know, think a bit more creatively within this um, box, let's say, or within this framework, but it would be a unified vision. And even if you're working on a small, um, you know, uh, 8-bit screen or you're working on a uh, mobile screen with high resolution, if your design language and your design principle is that you want to create something that is fun or you want to create something that, um, you know, en engages with the user, then that puts the designer in a place where um, with, within their mindset, they're going to naturally try and find a solution that fits that design principle. Um, and I think that would be sort of one of my first pillars when it comes to building design system from the ground up. Um, it's just making sure to have that in place. Um, and and I, I think a lot of it can also be um, inspired from the brand and, uh, you know, the identity of the company and the vision of the company. Amazing. I love that. Thank you. It's a really, really nice note to end on. So before we end this podcast, I'd like to say thanks so much to all of our guests, Amir, Jacqueline, and Stefan. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your thoughts and experiences for everyone to hear. If anyone would like to join the podcast in the future, you can email me at hannah.holloed at evolution-nordics.com or you can visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash SE. So thanks again so much to all of our guests and thanks again for listening. We hope that you can join us next time. Ciao.